Hi, and welcome to our podcast today. These podcasts are for all investors looking to understand markets better and just get some great education from all sources. Today, we have got one of the most famous people in markets ever. Uh, Every time you see markets fall or rise and you open the papers, there's often this guy on the papers. Um, He's the Albert Einstein of the markets. He is one of the most photographed, one of the most iconic, one of the most famous people on the markets. His name is Peter Tuckman, and we are truly excited, so excited to have him on the podcast today. Peter has made some time. He's finished his day over in New York, and here he is to share his story about his life, about markets, about his experience with uh, catching the virus and his recovery and how ill it made him, uh, all sorts of things to learn here. So listen in, and uh, it's a great, great um, chat with Peter. Hi everyone, I am super excited today. I Honestly, this is an incredible moment for um, my, my uh, interviewing life is I've got Peter Tuckman on the line. Now, Peter is in New York City. He is the most photographed trader on Wall Street, the most famous stock trader on Wall Street. Peter, <laughs> this is all from Wikipedia. New York Stock Exchange's most iconic stockbroker, the most photographed person at the NYSE, the most <laughs> recognizable broker on the floor of the NYSE, uh, wow! Wow! You know, um, welcome, Peter. Welcome. This is this is amazing. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. No way to live up to that introduction. Thanks, <laughs> Nigel. It's uh, you know what? It's it's really a pleasure. And I, uh, uh, you know, my obviously my reputation precedes me. I hope I can live up to it. Um, surely the photograph part is true. You know, whether I'm the smartest guy down there, that's probably questionable. I I do definitely look like Einstein, though surely not as smart as he but it's really an honor and pleasure to have met you when you were in new york and now to be on this call with you yeah so um peter it's, it's really exciting to have it so i just want to um, ask you a few questions about your story if i if i can you know um sure yeah, just just tell me about your your story you know what how, how did you get going in the markets sure it'd be my pleasure so you know what i mean it's kind of a long story uh, you know i um because it really wasn't always my destiny it uh uh, I guess it turned out that way, but along the way, my journey of life in general didn't really always point me in this direction. You know, I grew up in New York City. My parents are European, the Holocaust survivors. Wow. My father was a doctor. They spent four years in the camps after, during World War II. Wow. Fell in love, came to the States, had me and my brother, gave us an amazing sort of the ultimate American dream story of people. You know, their story was one of like, you know, the amazing resilience uh, Mm. uh, of the human spirit, having lived through what they did. And I think that contributed to a lot of my journey and my um, um, sort of the, 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 the excitement, the adrenaline and the directionality of my, my journey. But uh, growing up, I was sort of a, I was sort of entrepreneurial. I had a lot of sort of business sense. I was always sort of doing a hustle in some kind of a way. Although I came from a, quite a privileged background, good education, good family and ba- and stuff like that. But I, you know, for a while, I try, I spent a lot of time uh, early on in my career in college, traveling around the world. Music was going to be my, my trajectory for a while. I was managing a lot of jazz musicians and uh, studied agriculture for a while. That was going to be my journey. And then I ended up sort of aborting that whole situation and started getting into international business and finance and economics at the sort of the tail end of my um, 
uh, my university career. I ended up moving back to New York City, where I was born and bred. I ended up opening up a record store. I ended up starting to trade commodities uh, on the uh, um, sort of privately, just trading orange juice futures. I was sort of following that sort of path just out of the excitement of the whole thing. And I ran a record store. I had a record company. I was very interested in jazz and jazz music. And that was my sort of journey for a little bit. And then it was New York in the 80s. Things were a little bit wild. Studio 54, <laughs> you know, sort of a crazy, exciting life at that point. And I ended up um, deciding to sort of do a geographic. And I sort of, I've, business was sort of my intention, but I really wasn't clear where I was going at that point. And, uh, you know, New York got a little bit out of hand, I got to be honest. And so I ended up going and living in West Africa for a little while. A friend of mine owned a oil company there. Uh, he was a, he, he was one of the top engineers in a company called Saga Petroleum, and they were exploring for oil off the coast of West Africa. Been, the, the country used to be called uh, Dahomey, mm. um, and mm. it was now called the People's Republic of Benin. And um, at the time, it was sort of a dictatorship. It's now become a democratic state. And anyway, I spent a couple of years there doing uh, uh, learning about the oil business, doing accounting and learning. You know, this you have to realize I'm dating myself, but this is 1980, 82. This mm. is before before computers, really. <laughs> and uh, so we were doing like Lotus one, two, three spreadsheets. Anyway, um, you know, in 1985, I came I came back to I did that from 83 to 85. My record store was around from 80 to 82. And I came back to New York in 85. And I actually ended up I was still a kid. I was in my late mid, mid to late 20s. And I ended up, you know, um, getting a job, a summer job internship on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. My father was a pretty well-known doctor at the time had a couple of patients who were on Wall Street. And my father knew I was sort of into finance. And, you know, I had sort of a boisterous, loud, adrenaline filled sort of personality. And so we thought, all right, let's give this a shot. So I ended up getting a summer job as a teletypist on the floor of the stock exchange. And basically, the minute I walked onto the floor as the exchange, as you know, when you saw it down there, it really it was sort of for me, it was my arrival, mm. right? It was it was an adrenaline filled, superhuman element, human interaction type atmosphere, high energy, thinking on your feet type of place. And it's either one of those places that works for your personality or it doesn't. There's mm. no particular training for that job. And for me, it was my calling. Mm. And so I could fast forward to the fact that I've been there now for 35 years. My career has taken a number of different moves. It's always involved uh, trading and being a broker on the floor of the exchange. I've worked for many different companies. I've gone from doing regular equities and option business to trading convertible arbitrage, which was a path that I took for a while which was a very popular side of the business in the mid 90s. It was a really uh, a lucrative business to be in trading convertibles, convertible preferreds and whatnot. We could talk about that later. Mm. And then, my, you know, in 2007, the market sort of took, you know, obviously there was the I was there for the crash of 87. I was a, mm. a clerk. I was a clerk at the time. And that was an extraordinary uh, um uh, opportunity to really sort of grow in the business. You sort of, you know, I was thrown into the fire hard and fast, and it was one of those sink or swim situations. And I was fortunately able to swim. And so I got through that period of time. 
And then I sort of started to blossom there. I ended up getting a seat on the stock exchange and I worked for a number of companies along the way. And I've so I've lived through the crash of 87. I lived through the financial crisis. I lived through and traded through really growing. I mean, you know, you know, finance well, you know, the stock business well. It's you know, I'm I'm forever a student. Right. Mm. Mark markets change. They you know, they they are incredibly exciting on a day-to-day basis, the volatility, the liquidity, and all the new things that, you know, I mean, obviously the year 2020 has been an extraordinary time uh, to be a student of the market and be down there trading. So my career has been a 35-year one. It's still as exciting as it was in day one, as it is in year 35. And um, there's no more exciting a time or place to be in the year 2021 you know, on May 25th, especially to be here talking to you. Oh, really, hey, thanks for sharing that. What, a, what an amazing story. What are all these experiences, you know, West Africa and, um, and you know, your family story as well. It's just, in, just, in, just incredible, um, that generation of how, how resilient they were to come out of all that and, and build amazing futures. Um, but, uh, you know, your face is on the, on the world press, you know, down here in Sydney, Australia. There's your, there's your face every time there's a market crash. <laughs> um, you've lived through them all. Was uh, was last year uh, worse than the ones you've lived? You know, was that worse than '87? Worse than the GFC? Like, what were you thinking at the time? You know what? The, each one of them. I mean, it's a question I've been asked a bunch, and I, I I love answering it because it's so fascinating. Each one of these, uh, the crash of '87, extraordinary in its own right. I was new in the business, so it was really a growing experience for me. But yet, if I look back at it, clearly, probably. See, we didn't have computers then. Everything was being done on paper. There were 1,500 brokers on the floor of the exchange. There were three trading rooms. There were 10,000 people actually in that room, in the room where it happened, right? So that the energy, the human element was at its peak within a marketplace and perhaps the obviously the largest percentage move relative to where the market was at the time. You know, obviously each one of these crashes and consolidations and sell-offs and crises that we've seen and that I've lived through on the floor have have entities of their own, have personalities of their own. And obviously, it's a, each one of them has been a puzzle and each one of them is fascinating in its own right. So that one was very special. What caused it is obviously a longer story than this call. Mm. But it was, you know, obviously it was a it was there was some margin related uh uh, uh, situations. There were some insurance-related situations. There was a market that was sort of a little long in the tooth. There were some economic things that sort of caused it, and it happened. And obviously, if you look at it in retrospect, as every crash has been, it's been more of a buying opportunity than a selling one. But in its own right, it was quite severe and intense. Then mm-hmm. we go to the 2007-2008 financial crisis, which is different in its own right. Obviously, we know it was caused by the mortgage crisis. It was caused by the lack of confidence in the banks. It was caused by a lot of different reasons, repackaging bad mortgages, you know, selling houses to people who could not really afford them. And so it was a very deep and intense sort of, um, uh, you know, it was like we, we talk about, uh, you know, stocks going public in the markets and, and, and all the intensity of all that stuff. It's like building a building. And this was sort of the complete uh, disembowelment of a building, you know, the way the whole crisis transpired, the way it really started breaking everything down from the core. Look, our, our system is a financial one based on banking systems, Federal Reserve and whatnot. And this really ate at the core of what we are all about. Right. And there was a lot of sort of bad, bad apples in that game. 
right? There were people doing things that they shouldn't have done. And so that financial crisis was incredibly powerful in its own right, because that was one of those ones where I'm not sure people jumped out of windows in that one, but surely people lost fortunes, people mm. lost jobs, companies went out of business, massive bankruptcies. It completely changed the course of human events or economic events for sure with the future bailout of AIG and the different banks in the mergers that had to be taken with the bailouts of the Merrill Lynch's and the Smith Barney's and the brokerage industry in itself, the way we had to sort of unravel that crazy mortgage trade that we did with Countrywide, where basically people were being offered homes who couldn't really afford it. Then they then they were selling, reselling, reselling and repackaging these mortgages and selling them, you know, through a whole stream of events throughout the world. You know, they were taking taking bad, bad merchandise, repackaging it, putting a mm. bow on it, reselling mm. it to someone. So the unraveling of that trade was a, a powerful experience. It obviously affected and changed people's lives economically, physically, emotionally, spiritually in so many ways. And then we've got. Hi, sweetie. And then we've got um, what happened in 2020. So and look, and then we had the, 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 the Trump era. We had huge volatility and wild, you know, the tweeting and the the China story, uh, you know, the tariff story and what went on in the marketplace during the Trump administration. Hmm. And then suddenly and then suddenly the market, we found ourselves trading a market that was trading on February 12th, 2020 and record highs across the board in every indices. Right. The world was great. The balance sheets of the banks had, you know, it took six or seven years to get back to even from the 0708 crash financial crisis, right? And mm. then we started flourishing and the economy started doing well. Unemployment was at a low. The bank's balance sheets were strong. The consumer, which is the lifeblood of our economy, was in a super healthy situation. And then suddenly, February 12th, we hit the high of the market. And then suddenly the world started to come apart, right? What made this so different was this was a health crisis, not only a health crisis, it was a health crisis that turned into a global economic crisis. Not only that, it turned into a global economic shutdown and then it turned into a situation with no playbook ever before have we experienced the pandemic within a lifestyle that we lead today as a consumer based society with markets and flourishing economies, but basically not one human from the hills of Australia to the hills of Kathmandu to the bottom of Patagonia to New York City, there wasn't a human on this earth who was not affected in some way by this pandemic, right? Mm. And literally, it scorched the earth. And so what ended up happening was we saw from February 12th until March 23rd of 2020, we saw the market careen off of a cliff as the reality of what was going on, people started to die. It came out of China. It started going to the Middle East. We saw what happened in Italy. And the reality of it, even though people were in complete denial of it, clearly our administration was in complete denial of it. <laughs> the more, the faster the reality hit, whether there were insiders who knew that this was worse than it was, we should have maybe known it was worse than it was. The denial was so, so, so... Uh, uh, you know, preeminent in so many ways. And the market started to react to it. Look, we've got things in place called circuit breakers, which I think saved the market to a certain extent in a big way. But we saw the market go from February 12, 2020 to March 23rd, 2020, go down 10,800 points on the Dow. I don't know how many percent it went down on the S&P. We saw the total global economy come to a complete halt as hundreds of thousands of people throughout the world started getting infected and dying. Right. What what 
was became what was the unimaginable unimaginable became imaginable became uh, uh, imaginable right mm. and, and what was unacceptable became acceptable in so many ways because you know businesses came to a halt the hospitality industry got shut down nobody was getting on planes nobody was going to to sports arenas uh, the casinos were closing people were dying jobs were being lost and we suddenly saw a health crisis. And, and I say that to say because I was there on the floor during that time from February 12th to March 23rd. I ended up getting sick and we'll go ahead and tell that story in a little while on March 17th. So I left the floor on March 17th because mm. I was one of the first to get COVID. Yeah, but, I just read that, but, yeah. but watching what happened in the market during the two weeks until the administration announced on March 15th that this was a pandemic, and the market had careened down thousands and thousands of points. And we hit every circuit breaker. We would go down 7%, 10%, 15%, day after day after day. And the market virtually got, you know, what was down 30, 30 plus percent mm. into the March 23rd uh, bottom, which we hope is the bottom. Um, what I saw when I looked in the people's eyes that I was trading with, which I had never seen before, having lived through the crash of 87, the financial crisis and whatnot, was the fact that people, the look in people's eyes was one of, not only, first of all, that they were obviously getting hurt financially. I mean, we don't transact money on the floor. We mm. do represent customers who were losing large sums of money. People obviously were feared, fearful of their economic uh, uh, security, but they were also fearful of the health of their wife and children. Uh, their partners and children, their parents and their grandparents, right? It suddenly became real that this was a life and death situation. And I remember walking around the floor and looking at each other in the eye when the market was just careening off of a cliff, sort of like, you know, we are trained to fight in the heat of battle, right? Mm, That's what yeah. we do. I don't, you know, when I'm trading someone's hundreds of millions of dollars in any given day, I don't have the luxury of going, guys, you know what? I can't handle this. This is stressing me out and walking away, right? I'm being trained to boots on the ground in the heat of battle. No disrespect to people who have fought wars before. But from a financial point of view, this is where we thrive. We thrive on this chaos and madness. This is where we really need to bring our A game. But when we started to see in each other's eyes that fear like, oh, my God, you know, my mom's in a nursing home. I'm not sure she's going to survive this. I'm not mm. sure my wife has a pre-existing condition. And in the midst of all this money that was going on, we have to detach ourselves emotionally from that part and realize that, you know what, we don't know if we're going to survive this craziness. Mm. There's no playbook for this. And so I, whether it was me and I'm an emotional, empathetic person, or whether it's my life's journey and what I've lived through and, and whatever, but that became very real to me. This mm. was even before I got sick. Mm. And so I think that the, 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 the qualities of this situation, this, this crisis and this crash had so many different qualities to it than ever before, just because there was no playbook. It was global and it was a health crisis. Yeah, I mean, I mean, given that, I mean, it's still real, of course. I mean, the world's still struggling with this pandemic. I mean, are you surprised with the, were you surprised with the recovery, like the, the fear in people's eyes at the time? And, and it went from a market point of view to a, to a health point of view, as you said, you know, you know, your family could die from this. You could personally die from this, which is very different to just the market falling. But are you then now looking at it going, wow, I mean, how, how's the market where it is today? Is that, has that surprised you and, and your colleagues? <laughs> no, no, no doubt. There is no way anyone could have ever predicted that the market and the economy 
the market and the global pandemic situation would have ended up to where we are today. Hmm. We've seen, look, our system is set up with, 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 with stop clauses in place due to the Federal Reserve and government support of the economy that we saw step in and do the bailout in 0708, right? It took seven, eight years to get back to even in that situation. We threw $1.5, billion at the market back then, bailing out AIG and the banks and whatnot. And it's still to over a three-year period. And it still took seven years to get back to even. Yeah. What we saw happen when the reality set in of what was really happening to us and the effect on the market, and even more than the market, the effect on the global economy, and the Federal Reserve stepped in and has stepped in to this day, we are still buying $120 billion a month of securities to support this market, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, why is the, why, you know, sometimes markets trade in concert with the economy as it did on February 12th, where the economy was strong, the consumer was strong, the banks were strong, and the market was strong. Then we run into a crisis, and that's kind of where the crossroads are, where suddenly we have this bifurcation, where the there was nothing that the economy, there was no way for the economy to, to just bounce back, and it has yet to bounce back. And we don't even know what that bounce back is going to look like a year and a half later. But mm. I don't think anyone could have predicted that the $3 trillion that was thrown into the market over a three-month period of time, which is pretty heavy-duty fast-tracking relative to the last bailout back in 0708, even with all that gas and pedal to the metal that the Federal Reserve did, buying everything that they could, every instrument they could, supporting the market, stimulus package, whatever they did, could have even done supported the market where it did. We were back to even by August. We have now, we are up 30, 40% from then. We are now today, when you and I are talking on May 27, 2021, trading at literally just a smidge off the record highs in every indices. How is that possible, right? Yeah. Well, obviously it's because they've thrown everything but the kitchen sink, to use an American expression, English <laughs> expression at this market to support it. Now, did, did, did that happen? I, I believe that their hope was that they knew that there was not much we could do about the global economic shutdown because we were in a pandemic and we didn't know what the heck was going on. And we actually, on our side here, in my belief, we did not have an administration that was being honest and transparent about it to really try and fight it to the best way possible. However, they knew that if they didn't keep the markets together and both of these of these of these these buildings these buildings of the economy and the building of the market were to tumble then we may not ever come out of this right it, it would have been a really dark end to a to a beautiful story mm -hmm. so i figure that they knew that they needed to support one thing the only one that they they were powerless over supporting the the health crisis so they decided they would be they would be powerful in supporting the the market crisis. And in that way, they did an incredible job. I don't think anyone could have predicted that they would have turned out as well as it did. Right. So that's one of the most powerful things we've seen. I believe that their hope was if the market stays strong and we support it and all these companies don't go out of business and we don't come out of this thing a year and a half, two years later with no airlines and no cruise ships and no restaurants and no hospitality and and no business, no, no, no infrastructure to live by, then we would really be in deep, deep trouble. And they, I believe that their hope was that maybe if, we, if the economy would catch 
the strong backwind of, of the strong stimulus that went on to the economy, then maybe the, that the, uh, into the market, that maybe the economy would be able to uh, uh, join this beautiful, incredible march we've seen in the marketplace. Obviously, the economy is doing its best a year and a half later to try and reopen. Obviously, the reopening story, we talk about the virus, the volatility, and the vaccine, right? Mm. The reopening story has still got more unknowns than it has knowns. The global economic recovery story has way more unknowns than it's got knowns. How, when will life get back on track? When will the world be vaccinated? When will the business model of hospitality, of, of travel, of energy, of, 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 of retail and commerce, when will that become profitable again, right? When will you be able to go to the movie theater? When will the restaurants be at 100% capacity? When are people going to get back on cruise ships? When are people going to fly again? We don't know that yet. So while the markets have done an incredible job, and I don't believe it's a bubble, to sustain the strength they've had, and that's really a function of everything that's been thrown at them, right? We are now starting to see the market trade a little bit sideways, wondering and worrying about the inflation story. And that's a whole nother topic we can talk about. But mm. basically, we've got an economy globally that really has a lot more work to do before it becomes viable and profitable. Mm. We've got a population that's got a lot more work to do before they feel safe and confident to come back out of their hole and become part of the living the living experience again. Yeah. We're seeing that here in New York. Yes, New York's reopening at different levels along the way. Is there confident that everything is okay? I don't feel that way. We're seeing that a lot of people just don't want to go back to work. We're seeing that it's going to cost a lot more money to get people to come back to work. And I'm yep. not a proponent of, you know, that people are getting paid unemployment so they don't give a shit and they don't want to come, excuse my language, and they don't want to come back. To, they'd rather get paid not to work. I don't believe that. I think everyone given the opportunity to make a solid living in this in this economy now would love to go back to work. There's yep. fear. There are unknowns. But I think, you know, we're doing our best to get our economy reopened all over the world. Obviously, different parts of the world are having a harder time. I noticed last night that Japan is in a state of emergency. Mm. They're about to try and entertain the Olympics. That's not going to happen. Mm. It looks like. We've got, you know, uh, different countries around the world. Western Europe is still in lockdown, right? Mm. You've got countries around the world that are still struggling with lack of vaccine. India, obviously, being decimated by this disease. Parts of South America as well. So there's a lot of intra intramural fighting in the political scene. In America, there's still a lot of problems with the reopening story um, yeah, throughout the rest of the world. I'm confident we will get to the other side of this. But... But the, there is no playbook. And I think this is an ever evolving story that yet yet to be determined the outcome. Hmm. Yeah, so true. And, and look, there's, there's just so much unknown, as you say. A lot of people keep asking, well, you know, what, what's going to happen next? I mean, what do, you, what do you think, Peter? I mean, you've lived through all these markets before. This one, you know, it, it is pretty crazy. You, you even um, you had the virus and you survived the, the virus. So I'm interested in your, yeah, your personal journey of, of having the virus and getting through it. And now just how you, what's the mood there in New York? What's, what's, what's everyone thinking? Is everyone optimistic or is everyone still very fearful? Like what's, what's, what's the mood on the floor? Well, I'll dip into the tail and I won't mm. go that deep into it. it, it mm. it's, it's deeply traumatic. Uh, I ended up getting the virus on March 15th, on March 17th. Well, I started to get sick and become yeah. symptomatic on March 17th. I actually finally got a diagnosis on March 
25th. So it took mm. about seven days back then to actually get my test back. They did cut back positive. By then I had had the virus for six days. I was incredibly sick. I wow. ended up mm. having COVID for four months. Wow. Uh, my, my journey was, uh, you know, virtually almost killed me. Uh, I did not go. I was obviously, I, I never went to the hospital. So my father was a well-known doctor. I work on the floor of the stock exchange. So I was fortunate enough when I did get sick and I did notice the reality of what was going on in New York City on March 17th was that everyone who was getting sick and going to the hospital was dying. Mm. So I was at least had the foresight and the privilege to be able to put together a team with the help of the stock exchange, a number of doctors that I received through them and a team of doctors that I put together myself who had been students of my dad, a very well-known uh, um uh, infectious disease doctor, a cancer doctor, my own private doctor, and these two gentlemen from the stock exchange who had experience with COVID as anyone could at that time. And they basically kept me alive. I had 103.7 for more than two weeks. Um, I had, I had, I had developed meningitis. Uh, I lost a good part of my memory. I had developed severe neuropathy. I developed dehydration of many of my organs and I almost died. There were nights there were nights where it was not clear, you know, my wife mm. would be on the phone with the doctors and they made it clear to her that they that they weren't sure whether I was going to make it. Mm. So after four months of this, um, uh, I finally did test uh, negative for COVID mid-June. You realize I got sick on March 17th. Mm. Wow. And it was really, it was a ruthless, ruthless time, spiritually, physically, emotionally, in every possible way, as I saw the world around me sort of dying, I was isolated in quarantine here in New York. I had sent my family away to protect them. Mm. Uh, my, my wife and daughter have some pre-existing conditions. My son basically took care of me from afar, basically bringing me juice and Gatorade to su support any, any level of health I could develop. And I had this team of doctors who spent hours talking me through nights where I couldn't breathe, mm. nights where I had delusions from the highest temperature and whatnot sure. and you know what ended up sure. happening was i got i got tested negative in june i still had severe covid symptoms which were insane headaches inner ear issues memory issues um uh, a neuropathy to my hands and feet different organ problems uh, kidneys and whatnot and what ended up happening was that in mid-july it got so bad neurologically for me that I ended up going to have an MRI of the brain because I had developed meningitis uh, commingling with the um, with the COVID, and it turned out that my whole cervical spine had collapsed. That the that the uh, disc matter in my neck uh, uh, would basically had turned to dust, mm. and that the whole cervical spine had collapsed on itself, and that I was had no spinal fluid left in my upper part of my cervical spine and that I needed a emergency surgery. So I ended up having a four level fusion of my cervical spine. And that, so that was another journey from August 12th until mid November. Unfortunately, since then I've developed, I just had to have a massive surgery of my left shoulder, three rotator cuffs uh, and, and a number of other issues with that shoulder. It's happening again with my right shoulder. So I'm suffering yeah. from a lot of, what? Long, co long what? COVID yeah. issues where my connective tissue uh, had been basically decimated and became brittle from the, <laughs> the, the high temperature from COVID, from the meningitis. So 
you know, I am physically not not the man I used to be. I'm not sure I ever will. My memory is back, and that's great. Mm-hmm. I'm thrilled about that. My I've lost. I have deep scarring in my lung. I've got you know. Uh, uh, I, I get tired super super easy and mm. as i said you know any, small movements will actually cause my ligaments and muscles to tear so that <laughs> journey and i think that's a journey you know i've become part of a number of different networks on on the internet one called survivor corp and if your audience wants mm. to look up it's on facebook it's a public page they can look up it's got 175,000 people's story about covid survivors People wow. who actually, as as bad as my story sounds, actually, I, I, I you know, we look, we have in America, three million plus, 30 million people have been infected. No, 30 mm. million, how many? 30 million people actually had the virus and probably about 10 to 10% of those people are, or more, are suffering from severe long COVID um, mm. uh, symptoms. So, and I think we're going to see that worldwide. And so whether they, whether they're brain fog, whether they are um, inability to breathe and, 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 you know, pneumonia and breathing issues, whether they're neuropathy and some other physical ailments, there are things now, obviously no playbook for this. Obviously no one really knows what was in the sequence of the, of, of the coronavirus. Obviously now in the recent news, we're wondering whether this was made and released out of a, out of a lab. I'm not mm. a conspiracy theorist, whether it came from a bat, where it came from, and really what was the makeup of this virus. I do know personally from my experience that whatever it was, it's, it's, it's way beyond mortal man on this one. And it's really, it's, it's tested every bit of, of spiritual fortitude that I, that I, um, I have. And I, I surely tap into my, my DNA and my parents' resilience to try to have tried to survive this year. I'm a year and year and a quarter mm. into this virus. And, you know, I wake up every day and it's a struggle for me to get up and get dressed. Wow. So mm. I think I think we're going to see the, the, the long term implications of that in people's health around the world. Mm. Now, do I see the world's coming back to normal at some point? Yes, I'm an optimistic guy. Mm. I'm a cop. I'm a cup half full type of person. Mm. But I, I, you know, I think the denial about the reality of the virus is one of the obstacles to people getting on top of this thing, realizing that there are people out there who did get sick. You know, this premise in the beginning, and I, I went public with it early on in my journey where I said, everyone thought if you're young, you get better. And if you're old, you die. Mm. And the bottom line is there are millions of people who are young like myself who got the virus, whether they had bad symptoms like me or not, who ended up coming out with really long-term problems. I mean, I am, I'm part of a number of support groups of people who are suffering from brain fog, you know, mm. uh, young people, 30s and 40s, you know, who are viable, you know, marathon runners who can barely walk upstairs now and don't remember, you know, what they did yesterday. So I think that's going to be a challenge going forward. Yeah. E- economically, I think it's going to take a long time to get over this. Just think about mm. it. You know, the supply chains that had to be shut down to support the businesses that were going forward, right? Because when there was no demand for services and, and commodities, right? We're seeing that with this inflation story that's unfolding. You know, basically getting people to get back into restaurants, on cruise ships, in movie theaters, you know, going to sports arenas. When are everyone going to get real about the vaccine and, and, and take it so that if they're not willing to protect themselves, they're willing to protect others? So I think the, 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 the recovery story is going to be a long one. I don't think the market cares at this point. The market's doing what it likes to do. 
And I'm, I'm happy it's doing that. I'm hoping that the economy catches a backwind of it. But I think the recovery story, the, the reopening story, the virus story is, is one yet to be determined. And so I do have anxiety around it. I'm kind of one of those guys. I get up every day. I've got a really strong spirit, you know, and I'm a fighter. And, and, and I try to empower others to, to fight through this thing. But the realities are daunting. I got to be honest with you. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just listening to your energy and passion, Peter, is just incredible. And I didn't know how seriously you had suffered from the virus and still are. So, look, thanks for sharing that. Because in Australia here, we've got, um, we've got a large proportion of the population who are a bit blasé about it um, and not getting vaccinated. So uh, anyone listening to this, if uh, we thought we were going to get a story about the markets, well, um, <laughs> one of the big parties, go and get vaccinated because, um, wow, you know, you don't want to have to go through what you've been through. And, you really uh, don't. I, I beg people that way. I, mm. I know there's anxiety around the a vaccine that, you know, people felt it was fast-tracked and this and that and whatnot. But the bottom line is that, you know, even with the vaccine, you cannot be symptomatic and actually pass it on to someone who mm. actually may get very sick from it. And I also beg people to realize this virus is real. The side effects are daunting and devastating. I know personally from my experience and people I've spoken to and the relationships I've made having be part of these support groups that this is this is no this is no BS, guys. Right. And that if you get it, there's no guarantee you won't get these side effects. And I've seen people's lives change, my, mm. myself included, forever, forever. Mm. This mm. is a life and death situation. And, I, you know, look, I, I love life more than anything. I cherish it. I cherish my energy and my health and and family and and, you know, and lo love of travel and and all that stuff. And the fact that now I'm really wondering whether I'll have the strength to do that going forward and all this stuff, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's a bit upsetting. And, and, I, and I'm sort of sorry about that, the way that, you know, let's be clear, 550,000 people died in the United States, millions mm. of people died mm. across the world, right? It, sometimes people are hard headed enough that if it didn't, if it wasn't their mother, grandmother or grandfather who died, they don't give a shit or they don't mm. accept the reality of it. Mm. But just, just think about it. There are 500,000 families in the U.S. and millions of people across the world who lost somebody, you know, who, who at the next to at the Memorial Day dinner or, 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 or the holiday dinner, somebody's going to be missing in that chair at the head of the table. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, for them and their family, that's some serious real life stuff. Yeah. Right. So I, I beg people, you know, if you want if you want to play that game, I, you know, I wish you the best and all. But at least have the respect for those others that there are people who actually lived and died through this. And there are people like me who got it and his lives have been changed forever. Mm. So, you know, I beg of you, you don't want to get this. That's, that's my best cautionary tale. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Ah. <laughs> well, Peter, it's been, um, it's been amazing having you um, share your time with our Australian listeners, um, your life story, your market experience and, and your Corona, your virus story. Um, can't thank you enough, you know, to our listeners. Um, it's a real privilege to have you here today. You know, the most iconic trader on Wall Street. They, they see you, your face in the papers. Um, and I think hopefully next time when they see your face, uh, they'll get to know, you know, know who that person is. And, um, and maybe they won't panic so much when the media tries to throw your image up there and say, hey, what's going on? Um, you know, and having to, knowing your story, I think, will help uh, all investors realize that, you know, markets do come out of these things. No matter how bad it is, you know, somehow markets, as you said, have uh, surprisingly got to a stage where they are today. So can't thank you enough. Um, 
Any any last comments you'd like to share? Absolutely, absolutely. One thing they don't only use my face when the market's crashing. <laughs> they they do have some moments of euphoria when the market is <laughs> true, going up too. True, true, right? True, I am true. the guy. I am the guy who is the one who brings out the hats every time yes. that we pass a landmark on the Dow Jones Industrial Average at thirty four thousand <laughs> and thirty five thousand. I just had my thirty five thousand hats made up. So if anyone's wondering about my confidence about the markets going forward and marching on to 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 Pretoria, it's all good, and I think we're going in that direction. If people want to look at it from a historic point of view, every one of these big crises has ended up being better buying opportunity than mm. a selling opportunity, right? And that they, right story. I, yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 I let people know that they will be seeing my face for a long time to come because even through this journey, I get up every morning and I go to work because I found something I love to do. And one of my biggest mottos is if you find something you love to do, you'll never work a day in your life. So I'm a big proponent of people loving. Well, I'll say one last thing that, you know, this market, what, what's happened since COVID and the new democratization of the marketplace here in the U.S. And I don't know as much in Australia, but I think it's worldwide with the advent of these new trading apps and and whatnot, that that the, the obstacles to entry into the market. Have a lot of them have been knocked down and that some people who were never able to be in the market before now have an opportunity to get involved, whether mm. they become investors or they become day traders. Right. Mm. And I will say one thing to put in a plug for my for my own mission here. One of the mm. missions I've chosen to go forward with is to try and help educate people about markets, about yep. technical analysis. And I know that's one of your one of the things that you you study. You're a you're a yep. student of the market. Yep. And what we've done is we've launched a course now. Yeah. From Wall Street Global Trading Academy, which teaches people about technical analysis, which is yeah, the yeah. best defense against volatile markets. Yep. Right, guys, that's about reading charts and, 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 and putting the probability in your favor that when you're trading, you will win more times than you lose. So people can reach me on all sorts of social media. Yep. I'm an easily accessible guy. If you've heard this interview and you want to say, hey, Pete, what's up? You can always DM me on Instagram, Einstein and Wall Street. I'm a easily accessible person so if anybody wants to reach out talk about education about markets about about you know spiritual resiliency i'm available well we'll um, we'll share those links and i'm sure you'll uh, get hopefully lots of aussies um in, mate. That'd, be, that'd be great and hopefully when the world um, reopens we can um, we can get we can get you down here it's a deal <laughs> i would love to come i would awesome. be happy to be your guest nigel awesome peter well again thanks so much have a lovely evening and um look forward to speaking to you soon peter and stay well Thank you, sir. Cheers to you and everyone right. on your call. Cheers. Thanks, Pete. Bye, bud. Bye. Now, I hope you'll agree that that was uh, just an incredible interview, and uh, Peter Tuckman was just amazing. Not only his experiences of Wall Street over decades and decades, the ups and downs, the, the crashes, the booms, but his own life experience, his experience with COVID, um, and just what a great guy. So, Listen in, share this pod. Uh, if you want more information, reach out to us, um, www.archcapital.com.au or all these uh, social links that this is attached to. Thanks for listening. Hi, if you're thinking of uh, making a podcast or listening to this podcast and think it's really hard, well, it's not. Anchor makes it really easy. First of all, it's free. There are really easy creation tools to use. Uh, Anchor distributes your podcast. They've got a really helpful help desk. 
Um, you can even make money from your podcast if you'd like to. That's all there. So the call to action is just go to, to your app store, go to Anchor FM and get started. It's really easy. These podcasts are general in nature. And what does that mean? Well, it means all the information in this podcast doesn't take into account any of your personal circumstances. So it can only be taken in general. It's not trying to give you specific advice. Um, There are no mention of products or anything like that. But if there were, you would need to go and read all the product disclosure statements necessary for that particular product. We interview people and their opinions are their own. They're not giving you advice either. So if you want more information, please reach out to us. If you need personal advice, please seek uh, an independent qualified advisor or visit our website, www.archcapital.com.au. Thanks.